On the 14th of October, Australia is going to go to the polls for a referendum. We are going to vote on a change to the Constitution. And that change is proposed to be a modest request from Aboriginal people to experience and to gain some recognition through a voice to Parliament. And it sounds modest in the way it's been described, but my fear is it's anything but modest. Now, my main concern is bigger than the details, which I'm about to explain for you in, in my concern. My main concern is actually the divisive nature of the entire thing. Because it's fairly common and, and fairly common sense that we should not be dividing the nation along lines of race. Now, the architects and supporters of The Voice say that that's not what's happening, and the racists are not the people who are proposing one race of people gain some extra representation in our democracy, but the people who are opposed to it, uh, which is a critical theory, cultural Marxist way of inverting reality. But the fact remains that what they're planning on doing is changing the Constitution, and it is not a small change. There are many words being chosen in the changes to the Constitution. Forget the Uluru Statement from the Heart. Forget whether it's one page or 26 pages. Forget all the body of evidence in culture in decades gone by, from the Aboriginal tent embassy to the Aboriginal flag to Aboriginals naming Australia Day, Invasion Day and Mourning Day. Uh, forget all the ways in which uh, the graffiti around uh, various parts of our cities and even on clothes itself claim uh, that this is Aboriginal land, not Australian land, uh, that Aboriginals are sovereign and never ceded sovereignty instead of failing to defend it. Forget all of the ways in, in which the rhetoric and attitude of the philosophy displayed is separatist, divisive, resentful. I mean, I've even heard an Anglican priest who identifies as an indigenous man recently say that Aboriginals don't need Jesus, that uh, it's somehow a, an insult to the fullness and sufficiency of their ethnic identities to suggest that they need anything else, uh, which is apostate. That is such an anathema idea which has no fellowship with Christ, who says that there is no longer any Jew nor Gentile, no wall dividing us, that in Christ we are the one. And Paul in Acts says that uh, uh, from one man, all the nations of earth were created. We are one race, the human race, uh, and we are all equally fallen and in need of the Saviour Jesus Christ. Uh, if any ethnicity can be attached to the eternal spirit God, creator, God Almighty, revealed, incarnate in Jesus Christ himself, uh, it would be the brown religion of the Middle Easterners that occupied uh, Judea, Samaria in those days of ancient Israel. He was a Jewish man and he fulfilled a Jewish religion. Uh, it is in no way a white or Anglican religion, to be technically accurate. And yet, this Aboriginal man is so symbolically representative of the Blacktivist movement that sees itself 
diminished by participation in a nation like Australia, by uh, participation in a universal religion such as is Christianity. And I don't mean universal as in there's many ways to God. There is one way to God and eternal life, and that is through the man Jesus Christ. And yet this person who claims to be a minister of Christianity and a priest of Jesus Christ, he actually thinks that Aboriginals should be left alone and don't need Jesus. And that is so tragically symbolic of the rest of uh, this minority's inability to engage and assimilate and become part of this great nation. And that really is the problem. They resent the word assimilation. Even now, some hearing my words are triggered by it uh, and, and uh, damning me for daring to suggest that uh, we should adapt and live together uh, with one culture. And I do say that confidently and boldly. Uh, there is no such thing as equality of cultures, just as there is no such thing as equality of ideas. And a culture is just a body of ideas particular to an ethnic group. But culture is not sacred. Culture is not immutable. In fact, uh, the Scots and the Japanese are among now great cultures which went through a period of cultural embarrassment, whereby they compared themselves to their neighbours and others in the International Fellowship of Nations and they found out that they were lacking. And so they took steps to remedy their deficiencies in culture, not apologizing for who they were, but determining to mature from where they were as a culture. That cultural embarrassment is something that so many blacktivists need in order to improve. If you want to close the gap in Australia, uh, the best method is to assimilate. Ask the 80% of Aboriginals who are doing well, what have they done differently to achieve comparable outcomes to the average Australian outcomes? That is how we close the gap, not by patronizing and infantilizing Aboriginals with so much more white man savior syndrome, tax dollars and welfare, bureaucracy, and uh, this socialist Marxist divisive advantage setting groups amongst groups instead of workers against capitalists, it's minorities against majorities, oppressed against oppressors, uh, which are imaginary confected terms uh, that have no semblance to reality because there are so many people who are not indigenous and still have adverse outcomes in culture. And the help that government offers is a good thing if it's addressed to people who are in genuine need, not entire categories of people who may or may not need that kind of extra representation. And of course, in a democracy like ours, we value representativeness. And here's one of the things about the change to the constitution. There is no guarantee that the voice will be representative. There is nowhere in the constitutional change that the voice will be democratic or even elected in any way whatsoever. It only says that the government of the day gets to decide. Now, we've been told that we need not fear the change to the, rep to the constitution because the government of the day will be able to change what it looks like. And the only thing that will be permanent about it is its existence. But that's a terrifying thing. Because as much as the government of the day can reduce the powers of the voice if it's not working and failing, as is the likely outcome after 50 years of bureaucratic failures, 
It is equally true and possible that the government of the day, maybe 50 years from now, and this is the kind of vision we need when we tinker with the nation's founding document. It's entirely possible that the government of the day could grant functions and powers to the voice which greatly expand, greatly expand the influence and interference of the federal government in the everyday lives of Australia. Has the state or federal government done so well in the last three years with the powers they have that we should trust any future government with more powers, without definition, without boundary or limit? I say no. I say this is a blank check to government power. The Constitution already says we need to have directly elected representatives in the parliaments of Australia. And so the High Court has said because we need representative government, we must have the freedom to debate politics. Therefore, they imagine that the freedom of political communication is in the Constitution when in fact there are no such explicit words. It is a recent discovery of High Courts and not always imagined there. In fact, the founders of our Constitution looked at the First Amendment from America which is the establishment clause. It said there shall, sorry, the First Amendment says freedom of religion, freedom of speech, freedom of uh, peaceful assemblies, freedom of the press, uh, and uh, freedom of petition. Now, all of those things were mentioned in the First Amendment, and yet the Australian founders only saw fit to explicitly articulate freedom of religion in section 116 of our Constitution. Why did they not explicitly grant us freedom of speech? I don't know, but the High Court imagines they did. And yet they very clearly didn't, because if they wanted it there, they would have explicitly put it in like they did with freedom of religion. And so the High Court is just as likely to imagine something that isn't in the new chapters of the new chapter and section of the Australian Constitution if this referendum is successful. They may very well imagine all kinds of powers, perhaps up to the same level as a royal commission, whereby a royal commission has the power to subpoena witnesses and compel them to appear, where they have the power to compel the production of documents from your business or from any uh, organisation or personal, who's to say that's impossible? If the High Court says that that is implied in order for the voice to be effective. There is so many other things I could detail, uh, but let me recommend to you that if you want to uh, listen to a really academic analysis of just how slippery and broad the language is, how, how broad it is by its vagueness, of this proposed change to the Constitution. Forget the legislation we haven't seen. Forget the Prime Minister's agenda and the Uluru Statement from the Heart and, and all of the rhetoric that we've seen around it. The actual change in writing itself, which will be permanent in the Constitution with governments that come and go, is itself frighteningly broad by its vagueness. Uh, there's a really good podcast that you can listen to for about 90 minutes uh, by Jonathan Cole, with Professor Nicholas Aroni in Constitutional Law at the University of Queensland. And uh, it is a very, very important listening. 
but that's a, a very, very brief overview of, of maybe 10 minutes of it right there. Uh, this constitutional referendum coming up is terrifying by the power it gives the High Court and the federal government to reinterpret the whole constitution. Everything changes when the preamble changes. Currently, sovereignty is vested in the Australian people. Care of the preamble. Everything else in the constitution has to be interpreted through the lens of the preamble. The people of New South Wales, Victoria, South Australia, Tasmania and Queensland, uh, humbly relying on the blessing of Almighty God, resolved to form an indissoluble commonwealth. It was the people, it was the will of the people that caused the uh, existence, coming into existence of the Australian Federation. Now, if the preamble is changed to acknowledge uh, Indigenous Australians, effectively the preamble has created two classes of Australians. The High Court has repeatedly rejected cases which assert and tested the sovereignty of Indigenous Australians. There is no such thing, according to the High Court. Who relies on the Constitution? And this again is the agenda of separatism. What else will need to be reinterpreted in the other chapters and sections of the Constitution once the preamble is changed, the lens through which the entire document is interpreted? There will be a lot of potential changes with deep ramifications for all of Australian society, politics and the democracy and liberal, inclusive, pluralistic society that we have enjoyed for so long. Mark my words, the change to the, even if this was a good idea, the actual wording to the constitution is incredibly poorly drafted, perhaps very deliberately by wicked agendas who would seek to greatly expand, not the power of Aboriginals, but the power of the federal government. This is a blank check that must not be signed by the Australian people at this referendum. And above all of that, I am, you are, we are Australian. And as our anthem says, one and free. Let no politician's referendum divide us and forever separate us and forever say that Aboriginals will need help because they are less than. They are not. There is no agency or dignity or, or, or political power that every Australian does not already have, including Aboriginals, which government can give it. Government cannot give Aboriginals or any other nation more agency, sovereignty or dignity. We all enjoy sovereignty right now as Australians. We all enjoy dignity and agency once of legal voting age to influence, to make representations through our elected representatives and through petitions to the parliament. And so many not enshrined uh, bodies, lobbies and advocacy groups. There is great participation and in fact, there probably is no greater organised uh, constituency politically in Australia than Aboriginals. This is a solution looking for a problem. The problem that it proposes to solve uh, is never going to be solved by an unoriginal idea. Another 50 years of bureaucracy is a complete waste of taxpayers' time 
and money and of precious energies that should be directed to effective solutions. And as I said right at the beginning, perhaps the most effective solution is for the 80% of Aboriginals who are doing as well as most Australians on all uh, normal outcomes, they should actually give advice to the 20% of their brethren who are not doing so well. What is it that you did which made you complete school, get a job, succeed at health and longevity and family integrity and safety? What is it that you did that they're not doing? That is how we can actually close the gap as a nation. These are tough conversations. And uh, sadly, uh, this is an unfortunate way to bring them to the table. But these are the conversations that have needed to be said for a long time. There is nothing less Christian. There is nothing less compassionate than the paternalistic uh, spirit of rebellion and division, which is manifested by blacktivism. It's time to put an end to this, to practice forgiveness, to practice humility, and to walk together in love of neighbor, not arrogant hostility. Coming up in this episode, I'm going to sit down with Sarah Game, MLC. She is One Nation's first MP elected to the Parliament of South Australia. And she was the first state politician in South Australia to say no to the voice of division, to Albanese's referendum. I'm going to sit down with her in just a minute and ask her why she said no, as well as all the other exciting work she's doing in South Australia. I'm Dave Pello, and this is the Church and State Show. May all that you stand for, and that we stand for, be preserved under the providence of God for the happiness of mankind. The trouble is caused by unthinking people who carelessly throw away ageless ideals as if they were old and outworn machinery. But it is the values of individual liberty, equality before the law and the supremacy of people over the state to which we can always with confidence return as a powerful and uniting force. Australia is not a secular country. It is a free country. Welcome to the Church and State Show, Sarah Game. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you so much for having me, David. Now, congratulations. You've just managed, at the time of recording, you've managed to uh, have the great success and accomplishment of passing uh, your first piece of legislation initiated and submitted uh, and supported uh, by you in the South Australian Parliament. Tell us about that. That's right. I've just had uh, the first piece of legislation. It's called the Ministerial Travel Report Amendment Bill, and it basically demands that uh, all ministers uh, and their staff and any public sector employee that travels with them outside of uh, the state, so interstate travel as well as international travel, that uh, a report needs to be tabled in Parliament within 45 days detailing exactly why every member attended that trip and exactly what they spent broken down in terms of food, beverages, accommodation and transport. So I uh, got unanimous support from the Liberal uh, Party as well as my crossbenchers. It wasn't opposed by the Labor Party and so hopefully it's going to have a passage in the lower house as well. Fantastic. Well done. So yeah, we do hope that gets uh, approval in the lower house. Now, I want to talk to you about several things today and um, very happy to uh, help the rest of Australia get to know about the important work you're doing in the South Australian Parliament. 
so let's start, first of all, with an issue that affects all Australians, the voice to Parliament. Now, again, you uh, set the standard for others to follow in the South Australian by Parliament by being the first state MP to come out as uh, intending to vote no uh, on the referendum that we will be holding on October 14. What are your reasons why and how is the conversation going in uh, South Australia? Well, exactly. I mean, the reasons why for me are pretty simple and straightforward and they are to do with the fact that I think we need to be supporting people in our community based on uh, need and not based on their race. So that's that's the first point uh, is that we support people based on need, uh, not based on race. And that makes sense to me when we think that uh, firstly, uh, many Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders are actually doing very well. They go to school, they get educated, they get jobs and they contribute. Um, and many of them, in fact, most of them are doing as well as non-Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders. And uh, the other point that I'd make with that is it's getting increasingly difficult to identify who in fact is Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander. And that's because uh, in fact, many are intermarrying and that's a good thing. That's a sign of reconciliation. Uh, and so for me, uh, it makes sense that uh, we actually just support people based on need, not based on race. Uh, and the other uh, reason that I'm against it is it's just simply a, a incredibly uh, divisive um, piece of legislation. Well, we've got a piece of legislation here in South Australia because we've got our own voice. Um, and it's, it's a divisive uh, concept, uh, really. And I, I, don't, I don't think that's a positive uh, step for Australian society. So for me, it's not about uh, the detail. I understand that for some it is about the detail. But for me, uh, I've certainly looked into the detail or the absence of detail, uh, but it's the concept uh, of yep. division um, and it's a concept of uh, support based on race uh, rather than based on need. I, I agree with all of those points. Um, you, you know, you might actually be the right person to hear me uh, postulate this theory that um, I, I'm less objecting to the increasing difficulty of identifying uh, Aboriginal descendants um, having recently compared it to um, the, the, I guess, the change in skin colour over generations of Jews. Now, I'm, I'm pretty positive that they were dark-skinned people in the Middle East 2,000 years ago and, and, and much further back, um, you know, when Abraham came from uh, Ur of the Chaldees, uh, they you were know, very dark-skinned Arabs. And obviously, there was lots of uh, diaspora and immigration to Europe and lots of intermarrying um, but they've maintained their language and they've maintained their culture. Um, and I wouldn't diminish the Jewishness of any of those descendants um, to date. Now, your mother is Jewish, uh, correct me if I'm wrong. Um, so, yes. you know, I actually, uh, I actually think there's probably some validity in, in perpetuating the culture, even though the uh, level of melanin may change. Um, your thoughts on that comparison and equivalence? Well, I think I absolutely support maintaining uh, culture and history. Um, you know, uh, I think that that's very important. I think where it becomes uh, an issue is simply when people say, um, 
and I don't think it's a good thing when we're asking people to prove, um, you know, uh, their uh, heritage or race either. I, I think that's that's a backward step. Uh, I think mm. that those kinds of questions come about, though, when we say one group of people are entitled to these entitlements and one group of people are not. I think we need to recognise that we do have a problem in this country with disadvantage amongst Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders. Um but we also have a problem with disadvantage in intergenerational uh, trauma with non-Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders. And as I said earlier, many, many uh, are doing yeah. well and contributing. And so that just brings me back. I think that uh, we'd all be uh, more uh, accepting, I think, uh, if, if the support was just simply based on in-need communities. Um, and so, you know, that's how I feel about it. Uh, that's a, that, that's 100% correct. I, I, I agree entirely. Um, the, the identification shouldn't be relevant to the assistance that the community through taxpayers, care of the government's management, um, provides these people. It should be based on need. Um, they should yeah. be getting a hand up and, and help, not separation. And, and I think, again, you really wisely identified the, the biggest problem with this referendum is that it's all about division. Uh, and that division is uh, incredibly unhelpful on, on every single level. Uh, and, of course, uh, Senator Jacinta Nampajimpa-Price agrees with you also that uh, yeah. it should be based on need, not identity, uh, because, uh, I mean, the thought I had when you were talking about that, um, you know, right when you started uh, listing your main reason that it should be on need, not race, was um, how in incredibly bigoted it is to think that one race of people will always be inferior and uh, dependent on another race of, of people. Um, it's, it's incredibly low expectations and the kind of bigotry that we've come to expect from the radical left. Well, exactly. And as I said, it completely ignores the fact that, in fact, many Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders are actually doing really well. Um, and, and so I completely agree. I guess the other point we've got to make when we're talking about the voice and, and, and the voice referendum is, is that we have to be prepared for the fact that um, a yes vote in this referendum is um, a blank check from, from, from Australians um, to the unknown. And we have limited resources. So uh, if you give a blank check to one area, you're going to have to be prepared for every other area to fail or be underfunded. You know, we do not know how much it's going to cost. We don't know uh, how it's going to look. And I think the state example we've got here in South Australia is a really good example of that because I believe we're the only state with our own legislated voice. And we've got here already, uh, there are proposed to be 102 members in that voice. So between the committees and the local First Nations and the state First Nations, we're going to have over 100 members with the potential for that to expand. We've just seen recently here an advertisement for a member of the Voice Secretariat, uh, which we had an unknown number of people in it, uh, for almost $300,000. So for me, the other uh, issue is that we're already aware of um, very significant issues affecting these communities. And it's time to think about uh, greater transparency about the money that's already being spent where it's gone, why it's not affecting mm. things, and how we can put our money into tangible solutions, not paying uh, a group of people um, an exorbitant amount of money um, and detracting from those in-need communities. Yes.
Yeah, indeed. Uh, you know, the, this waste that goes on in the industry is really where we need to be looking for solutions. How do we spend double the taxpayer money on non-Indigenous Australians, sorry, on Indigenous Australians that we spend on the average Australian? How, do, how does that money get absolutely wasted and there's no accountability or transparency of it? Um, joining you as one of the speakers at the Church and State Adelaide Conference on uh, 6th and 7th of October is Senator Jacinta Nampajimba-Price. And in her recent uh, press club appearance, she articulated that uh, when this fails uh, and if they're elected to government, they will be pushing for uh, a, a review and an audit of all of these Aboriginal industries and organisations uh, which are taking taxpayer dollars um, and asking for some transparency on the outcomes that they're getting for, for that money. Absolutely the right thing to do. You've inspired me to get ready early. Sometimes these days uh, catch me by surprise and uh, then it's too late because I'm too busy to do anything uh, proper. But uh, I want to talk to you in a moment uh, about your event for International Men's Day. Uh, so stay tuned, listeners, to that. I'll be talking to Sarah Game, MLC from South Australian Parliament, in just a moment about International Men's Day coming up and her initiatives, ideas about that. Uh, but first, Sarah, you have been appointed uh, to the committee, and correct me when I get the language obviously wrong, uh, but the committee to oversee the amalgamation of uh, universities in South Australia. Uh, tell us a little bit about that, what you've learned, uh, what it's actually called, and um, yes. your, your predictions on, on the issues that you've uh, noticed and become aware of there. Well, I'm on the joint committee for the establishment of the Adelaide University. So what they're looking to do is merge uh, the current University of Adelaide uh, with the University of South Australia. And uh, the reasoning for that uh, seems to be, and, and there do seem to be um, some positive reasons. Let me say, um, David, I'm certainly open, um, but I still have a lot of questions before I'd be able to support um, this merger. But the reasons for this right. merger seem to be that, um, you know, in Australia, it's the larger institutions um, that, you know, are better supported by our funding model. They get better, they perform uh, better with regards to research and attracting uh, students. And when I heard from um, the chair of the Productivity Commission, he said and convincingly provided the data that in South Australia, we are underperforming. Our wages are low, our productivity is low. We've been trying other innovation measures uh, and policy uh, measures for decades. They don't work. And that it was his opinion that we absolutely need university reform. That doesn't mean merger, but we need university reform so that they need to become more entrepreneurial um, to better support business um, and drive up wage growth. And so I was completely convinced that we do need university reform. Now, whether that means we need a university uh, merger, well, there are some very big unanswered questions for me and they are, uh, what are future anticipated infrastructure costs? I haven't been provided with those. The budget of 500 to $650 million doesn't include any infrastructure costs. So that's a concern to me. Uh, the other concern I have is, of course, if we're relying on increasing our number of international students, where are we going to house them? You know, we've already got a housing crisis here. Um, and thirdly, I mm -hmm. haven't yet seen comparative um, 
data, they're telling me that it's going to increase uh, the contribution into the economy by $500 million by 2034, but they haven't shown me uh, by 2034 what the current universities would contribute, and they haven't shown me uh, with some level of government investment into separate institutions what those universities would contribute by 2034. So they've given a comparative figure uh, of a whole range of benefits that we're going to see, but those benefits are comparing 2034 figures with government investment with 2022 figures without government investment. So I'm currently, David, in a position where I've got a whole lot of questions on notice uh, to the vice chancellors and various other groups. And, uh, you know, I really can't make a decision until I, I get some of them answered. Very reasonable uh, questions. And um, thank you for informing us. This is the kind of thing that voters need to be aware of because Governments and politicians in particular come and go, but they make decisions and spending decisions with other people's money that uh, they have no consequences for if that money is wasted. Uh, public servants and, I guess, chancellors uh, who are in charge of how these things are spent, um, have they're risking other people's money and they pay no personal cost for huge, extraordinary waste, such as Daniel Andrews and the Commonwealth Games in Victoria. Uh, Tell me, in the merger of these universities, is there going to be the ability to rationalise um, what the taxpayer actually subsidises? So, for example, I'm saying if we're paying for somebody's education or subsidising it, uh, whether it's completely free or, or um, partially uh, reduced in cost care of taxpayer investment, what's the benefit for us? Is there a benefit for a taxpayer paying for a bachelor's degree in interpretive feminist dance theory. Um, you know, what is the level of employment of these people in their qualified career five years after graduating? Um, obviously, there's going to be some fields which are very, very good for the taxpayer to invest in. We'll get a return on our investment. But that doesn't mean that we should be patronising uh, whims and fancies when so many people graduate university and never work in the field for which they were qualified uh, and end up uh, driving Ubers and packing shelves and pumping petrol. Well, absolutely. I mean, we need to make sure that, I mean, one of the benefits of a merged institution that has been explained to me is this wider uh, range of courses that can be offered. But we need to be assured that we are supporting students to undertake courses that are in demand uh, at the moment in society, not superfluous uh, degrees that don't really go anywhere. So I'm still waiting on that, David, to see uh, how is this university going to uh, address the skills shortage and better train Australians uh, for the current skills shortage. And as you raise, how is it going to benefit? I mean, not everyone's interested in going to university, but everyone's, you know, contributing to this university. So we need to know how is it going to, how are we going to see these ripple effects out to businesses and wage growth and greater prosperity for everyone? If I can be convinced yeah. that South Australians will benefit and this is going to help people with the cost of living crisis, this is going to uh, help uh, people economically in the future, um, then I'd feel really supportive of that. But I haven't seen uh, enough data to support that yet. Well, let's talk about uh, International Men's Day. Uh, now, you have some initiatives, and this is going to be your topic of presentation at the Church and State Adelaide Conference on the 6th and 7th of October. If you would like tickets for that, uh, viewers, listeners, 
um, head to churchandstate.com.au. Uh, as well as Sarah Game, MLC. We've got Senator Alex Antic from South Australia and Senator Jacinta Nampajimpa-Price, as well as uh, another dozen or so different speakers with more to be announced. Um, so it's going to be a fantastic event. That's churchandstate.com.au. And you can use uh, the special code for viewers of this show, GS20. That's GS20 to get 20% off your tickets. Um, but Sarah, International Men's Day, you're concerned about the welfare of men, the mental health of men. You're seeing other uh, demographic sections get representation and concern. Uh, what's the event you've got planned for International Men's Day uh, later this year? Yeah, well, firstly, David, I just think it's really interesting that there wouldn't be any International Men's Day event in the entire state of South Australia, were it not for the one that I was organising. It's the only event for International Men's Day. It is the only wow. event in the whole of South Australia for International Men's Day, which is on the 19th of November. And this idea came what about, uh, I know, after I let International Men's Day, I didn't even know about International Men's Day, we were totally honest. Um, uh, until I went to International Women's Day uh, last year, which was on the 8th of March, I had a lot of invitations. I went to the governor's house for breakfast and I went to the Adelaide Oval. I had so many invitations that, um, you know, I had to turn them down. And I just thought to myself, wow, okay, when is International Men's Day coming up then? And we looked it up and we realised, oh, it had already passed uh, without, uh, without a single event. I've actually looked back. There was an event here a few years ago, um, which... Which was had a, had an attendance of about fifty people, uh, I believe. But I don't think there's been an event in many many years here for International Men's Day, and so wow. I just started speaking about um, some men's issues. I guess in Parliament had a, a hugely uh, positive response to that. But some of the, the things that I want from the government, a minister for men, um, an office for men, like there is for women. Um, realistically it's going to take a lot of time and a lot of pressure to do that and I just wanted to do something tangible in that area and so I decided well I'm going to try and host my own international men's day event and uh, which is on the 19th of November and I have had an enormously positive response that morning I rang uh, the CEO of uh, Norwood Football Club, uh, James Fantasia he said yes immediately no questions asked we'll absolutely host that here I then uh, rang Chris McDermott, uh, former AFL legend, but also founder of the Little Heroes Foundation, which is a charity for seriously ill children and their families with unmet needs. And I asked him if he would speak at the event. He said, yes, no problem. Uh, I then went on to text uh, uh, Jim Wally, uh, who's a former Royal Australian Air Force fighter pilot, asked him if he would speak, no problem. Um, and none of the speakers asked any questions. They were just like, yes, International Men's Day, we'll do it. I had met a professor, awesome. Professor Witten, on one occasion uh, from the University of Adelaide. He advises the government on men and men's health issues. I rang him and asked him if he'd speak. He said yes. So we sold over 100 tickets, uh, David. It's still a couple of months away, hoping to sell another 50 or so more. Um, but we've got a great uh, speaker lineup. How much are tickets, Sarah? I've made them as $65. So there's no profit off the ticket uh, at all. It just covers food and drink. But for those who can afford it, there will be auction items and that will be going to uh, the men's arm of the Breakthrough Foundation, so into men's mental health research. Brilliant. Well, I mean, I'm excited and inspired. Now I want to try and think of something we can do in Queensland. I want to know what else is going on uh, in my home state, if it's as barren as uh, South Australia was. What a, 
a shame and a travesty. Um, and it's, it's just proof that uh, the patriarchy is an absolute myth uh, that uh, the the rough deal, I mean, and you know the statistics, uh, the population of prisons, the the uh, the fatalities in workplaces, uh, the suicides, the homelessness, all of these disproportionately affect men um, other than women, uh, and that reflects the role our role in society and and the, the nature of the tasks and uh, traditional gender roles, of course. Um, so yeah, it's, it's important that there's balanced appreciation and value, not to diminish the importance and, and concern for women's issues, but it's, it's not a competition. It doesn't take no. attention away from women to care for men. Uh, and you know, you've had, um, you know, significant impact in your life and in the lives of your children, um, by adverse health conditions for men. Um, and uh, that's something we should all be concerned about because the flow-on consequences um, actually bring not just a social but an economic cost to the whole of society. Um, and, and yet bringing it home and making it that personal um, where the cost is very personal and dear to people that we love, uh, that's, that's something we need to be reminded of. So thank you, for, um, thank you for raising that. I'm looking forward to everything you're going to talk about, uh, the issue of men's welfare um, and mental health uh, at the uh, Church and State Adelaide Conference, um, which is uh, coming up very soon. Tell me, um, has there been any kind of support or maybe more interesting, any kind of pushback or criticism for your attention on men's issues? Well, I haven't had any uh, criticism directly to me. You know, I can't guarantee what's gone on, you know, behind behind the scenes. But I would say that I have um, absolutely invited all of my parliamentary colleagues. I'm yet to have any confirmation from the major parties of anybody attending, but I've certainly um, invited everyone. I would just add, uh, David, that I've had uh, huge support from women as well because I've had a lot of mothers uh, write to me or sisters um, because they know absolutely they either have husbands or brothers or children who are suffering, you know, from this lack of um, attention and care for men at the moment. So um, I don't feel it's been divisive. I think I've had the vast majority of women and men have been hugely supportive um, and particularly men. They're so excited. Every Everyone that I've told here has been so excited uh, that there's this event going on. Well, well done and congratulations. Uh, tell me, Sarah, what's the, um, let, let's talk more politics, political nerd stuff now. Uh, you are one of the people in the crossbenches in the Adelaide Upper House, in the South Australian Upper House, I should say. Um, what's the dynamic there like uh, for, for the outsider who's not familiar with South Australian politics? Um, what is the makeup of the crossbench and, um, and yeah, how much is left, how much is right? Yes, well, in the state of South Australia, we've got a um, the left are very dominant. Uh, we, we've got um, certainly in the lower house, the vast majority of members are Labor, um, and we can almost get nothing through the lower house because they're so dominant there. In terms of the upper house, uh, Labor uh, only need the support of either the Greens or SABS. So we've got five crossbench members, uh, the Greens, mm -hmm. uh, there's two, um, and we've got um, a party called SABS who 
are meant to be a centre uh, party, uh, but I do find uh, that they often vote uh, with, with Labor. And so I'd say I'm the only uh, crossbench member uh, on the right side of politics. Uh, that said, uh, as I mentioned to you earlier, I did just get a piece of legislation through the upper house. And so there are ways of getting things done, but you need to apply a lot of pressure uh, outside the parliament, in the media and with the community. Um, and then you still can get some traction. But uh, that's not to say that I don't feel a lot of legislation has uh, been rubber stamped through uh, by Labor um, and, you know, either the Greens or SA best support. Well, uh, hopefully we can consolidate. Is there staggered elections in South Australian um, upper house for MLCs? So you get to serve two terms and uh, and we can maybe hope for a colleague for you uh, on the right of centre. That's right. Okay, good. Well, that's absolutely the goal. In 2026, uh, we're hoping to get at least another member and maybe another two members. And uh, who knows, we could have the balance of power and things could change dramatically. Yeah, that's brilliant. Well, Sarah, thank you so much for your time. Um, I appreciate the generosity of, of uh, sitting down with me today and, and coming on the Church and State Show. And Looking forward to uh, hearing from you at the Church and State Adelaide Conference on the 6th and 7th of October. Thank you so much, David. Today, we need a special kind of courage. Not the kind needed in battle, but a kind which makes us stand up for everything that we know is right, everything that is true and honest. We need the kind of courage that can withstand the subtle corruption of the cynics so that we can show the world that we're not afraid of the future.